would you stand? We're going to read our scripture verse this morning, and then the children can be dismissed to Children's Church. So we have two verses, John three sixteen and 17. Let's read together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You may be seated. Children, you may go to children's church. Okay.
thank you that we belong to you, that we can rest in the knowledge and the security of being your child. Thank you that we don't have to be worried about uh, tomorrow and the next day or what's going to happen in, a, in an election or in, a, uh, in our workplace or whatever because you are sovereign and over all things you are in the driver's seat, not us. So thank you that in the knowledge of that and our salvation that rests in you and you alone, we can live a life free from anxiety, anticipating the next move that we need to make because we just need to stay in your plan and stay in your hands. Lord, thank you for the privilege of having a place to come, a sanctuary where we can come away from the world and rest in you and we can turn our thoughts completely to you and we can feel the closeness of your spirit and the fellowship of other believers. Thank you that your love is so powerful that it overcomes all the injustice of this world and it provides in all ways for us. Help us to live the abundant life that you have provided and to profess it to others. Help us to be that humble servant that you showed us how to be, to love one another and to love you first. So we come with an offering this morning, Lord, and may we present it with hands that are willing, willing to be yours in all things. May you bless it and use it as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. When I began this series several weeks ago on basic beliefs, I began by pointing out that what we believe is very important. It shapes who we are, what we do. It determines whether we're going to live in fear or in hope, in joy or defeat. Therefore, as our passage said at that time, in Jude 3 and 4, we are therefore to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Just because someone claims to have a word from God or to be from God doesn't mean that they are. In John, 1 John 4, 1, we're even told, do not believe every spirit, but test spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. They need to be tested. We build our beliefs not on hopes and wishes, opinions and guessworks and feelings, but on that which has stood the test of time and proven to be trustworthy and true. So the second week, we looked at the source of our belief, which is God's Word. As Psalm 119 says, God's Word is to be a lamp for our feet and a light for our path, because it provides understanding for the simple. And then because people often make the Bible say whatever they want it to say, it also needs to be tested by the witness of the saints to whom it has been entrusted. In a world with a multitude of religions and diverse beliefs, the creeds, confessions, other statements of faith have proven to serve this purpose, distinguishing what is true Christian teaching from other teachings. And so to help with this, we've been using that most ancient of creeds, the Apostle Creed, as a guide. For 2,000 years almost, it has stood the test and been affirmed by the believers. 
And so as we've looked at the various statements, I have been comparing them with teachings of the beliefs of others, not, as I have said more than once, to criticize, but simply to make a clear distinction. Contrary to popular opinion, all religion is not the same. There are significant differences. And so, one last time, I'm going to ask you to say the creed with me. It states, let's begin, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. One God who created it all. That stands in contrast to those who teach there is no single God, or that God is merely an impersonal power or some latent potential within us. Or perhaps there are many gods or manifestations of gods. The next statement says, let's read together, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord, who was conceived, whoop, there we go, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. He's not half God and half man. He's fully God, fully man. As man, he understands what you're going through. And as God, he does for you what you could not do for yourself. He is the perfect Savior, which distinguishes Christianity from those who would teach Jesus is just a great teacher, like Judaism, or a prophet, like Islam, or an enlightened man, like Buddhism. And it's in contrast with those who would teach that he's a created being, such as Jehovah Witnesses, or an exalted man who earned his way to deity, such as taught by the Unification Church, or God's firstborn child through his own faithfulness worked his way to become a god, as Mormonism teaches. The next statement says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, the presence of God in your life, carrying on the work of Jesus. He's personal. He's actively involved in your life and in the world. That is contrary to those who believe he's merely an invisible force, such as Jehovah Witnesses, a spirit person, such as Mormonism the angel Gabriel, such as Islam, or our Heavenly Mother, such as the Unification Church teach. The next statement, I believe in the Holy Christian Church and the communion of the saints. It is his body, purchased in his own blood. And contrary to growing numbers of those who believe the church is unnecessary, that you can believe and follow Jesus faithfully without it. It is the church, not the individual, that is central to God's work. That's clear in his word. Because it is his family. We are his children. Created not to go it alone, but to be in relationship, supporting and building one another up. God expects his children to be connected to his family. And like family, it's through the church that our faith is strengthened and lived out. Then the next statement says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness, not something to be earned or worked for, but freely given by God's grace. 
That distinguishes Christianity from Christian science, which teaches that sin, death, disease, and evil, they're not real. They're all in your mind. So forgiveness and salvation is not really necessary. Education is. Buddhism believes that suffering and desire are the true evil, not sin. Again, ignorance, not forgiveness, is the key. Jehovah Witness, Islam, Mormonism all believe in sin, but they believe the way to overcome it is through good work and personal effort. Well, now we come to the final statement of the creed as we close this series, which is what I want to look at this morning, which says, let's read together, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. A Sunday school teacher was trying to explain salvation to her class, and she wanted them to understand that it was only by faith in Christ, by giving your heart and life to him, that you get to heaven. Not by doing good things, or not even by going to church. So she asked, if I sold my house and my car, if I held a garage sale and gave all of my money to the church, would I get into heaven? And all the children answered no. She said, well, what if I, bought, if I cleaned the church every day, mowed the yard, kept everything neat and tidy, would I get to heaven then? And again, they said no. She began to think that they understood. She was getting excited, so she asked him one final question. Well, then, how can I get to heaven? To which one five-year-old boy said, you got to be dead. <laughs> Death and what comes after it have both frightened and fascinated us for thousands of years. It remains the object of so much discussion and varied ideas and speculation. As one song put it, everyone wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Yet for believers in Jesus Christ, death has never been something to fear. In many ways, it's something we're told to look forward to. There's something better waiting for us than this world can offer. When we see him face to face, death, Paul said, will be swallowed up in victory. He told the Philippians that his own desire was to depart and be with Christ, which he said is better by far. Then there's the picture of the new heavens and the new earth painted in the book of Revelation. Something better awaits us, not to fear. And when we get there, Revelation 21.4 says that God himself is going to wipe every tear from our eye and he promises there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Compare that to what has become one of the most dominant belief systems of our age called naturalism, which underlies so much teaching today. The basic premise is that this universe, the material world that you can see and touch, is all there is. There's no afterlife, so once you die, that's it. Life has no meaning beyond today. Nothing to live or to die for except for yourself. And contrary to the old John Lennon song, Imagine, I find that terribly depressing. Because it provides no compelling reason to love your neighbor, to forgive those who hurt you, to put others first, to sacrifice for the good of others. It's survival of the fittest, so why not take advantage of it and use others as long as it's going to help you get ahead and you can get away with it. it that view cannot provide persuasive reasons 
why bombing hospitals in Aleppo is wrong. Why not hate others whose skin is a different color? People living for today with nothing to live for, a dismal way of life. What's the point? The Apostle Paul even raises this issue in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, If the dead are not raised... If there's no resurrection, no life everlasting, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Into that depressing void, Jesus steps and he says, your life does matter. Your life counts. There's more to live for than the emptiness emptiness of living just for yourself and what's for dinner. In John 11, there's a story of the death of one of Jesus' friends named Lazarus. It begins in verse 17, which says, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary, his sisters, to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to him, If you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you what you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He then asked Mary. And she replied, yes, Lord, or Martha, I mean, yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. To which the creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. They're built on Jesus. John, 1 John 5, it says, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Because this life is not all there really is. They're heading somewhere. It has greater meaning than transcends the world. We don't wait for someday to experience the life Jesus promised that John speaks of. The eternal life, the resurrected life in Scripture starts now. To quote a book called Everything, Earth is Heaven's Womb. Heaven's nursery, heaven's dress rehearsal. Heaven is the meaning of earth. Unfortunately, there are many others who profess a belief not that everything ends when we die, but there is an afterlife, but they live as if it doesn't exist, as if this life is all there is. It's like a man named Charles McKinley, 25-year-old shipping clerk from New York, who made the headlines a few years back when he got into some trouble with the law, and so he decided to flee back home to Dallas. So he filled out the paperwork for a crate at work, which he described on the the paper as clothes and a computer. He then called for the courier service to pick him up, and then this 5-foot, 8-inch, 170-pound man crawled inside a 3-foot by 3.5-foot by 2-foot crate which was then taken from New York Kennedy Airport to New Jersey, loaded onto a pressurized heated cargo plane operated by Kitty Hart Cargo. The crate was flown from Newark to Niagara Falls. 
then taken by carry, to the carrier's hub in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and eventually it made it to Dallas. When the crate was eventually delivered to his parents' home in DeSoto, Texas, he broke out of the box, startling both his parents and the delivery man. But he had gone for 15 hours without food or water or any place to relieve himself. He took a huge risk. The crate could have been handled roughly. He could have had broken bones or worse. Rather than the heated cabin, it could have just as easily been placed in the lower under-pressurized hold. He could have died. And to top it all off, he would have saved money if he had just gotten a first-class ticket. He didn't give much forethought to his trip that could have cost him everything. In the same way, many people may give lip service to the resurrection of the body and everlasting life, but the reality is we give very little forethought to our trip to eternity. We live like it doesn't exist. The resurrected life starts now. In this life, as someone has said, our goal should be to live in such a way that our transition to heaven is as small as possible. What are you building your life on? How are you living? As if heaven is real, the body, resurrection is real, or if it doesn't really matter and you think about it when time comes. Others believe not so much in the resurrection, but in reincarnation. Hinduism teaches through endless number of reincarnations, we gradually progress until we reach union, or as one writer said, we are reabsorbed into the ultimate reality. And each reincarnation is dependent on how you live in the last life, either improving your lot or being set back. But the whole goal is loss of identity. You become one with the cosmos. Buddhism teaches reincarnation through which they seek nirvana, that perfect state of release from all desire. Over a progression of reincarnations, you achieve that state of release, dependent on how you live here and now, but you lose your personhood. Others teach that our souls are evolving over time towards union with God, going through a cycle of birth and rebirth, gradually finding enlightenment, and the knowledge necessary to be freed from this cycle of rebirth and discovering the divinity within us. How foreign that view is to Scripture, which says it is appointed unto men once to die, and after that comes judgment. God's desire for us is life and eternity. It's why he created us. Jesus said he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. As one writer put it, the glory of God is the person fully alive. That fully alive life is found in knowing our creator. Jesus said he came to help us know him. Because we matter to God. He made you. He created you. There's no one else in all creation just like you. And any idea that in heaven you will lose your identity and be swallowed up in some greater reality is clearly contrary to God's word. Instead, Scripture speaks of retaining your individuality and identity by mentioning things like receiving a new name. Jesus is the great shepherd who knows each of his sheep by name. Our names are written in the book of life. Each one stands before the throne of God. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. On that great day, we stand before him. We are given a new body. 
his promise to build his church, which the gates of hell would not prevail against, is actually a promise of resurrection. The grave and the gates of hell couldn't hold Jesus, and they can't hold us either. O death, Paul said, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's gone. Others would believe in an afterlife, but they have a very different idea about it. Islam believes very strongly in an afterlife, but there are many levels of paradise and many levels of hell. Which level you end up in depends completely on you, your belief, your good deeds, your hard work. And there are some things like martyrdom that give you an automatic ticket to paradise. Mormonism teaches there are four levels in the afterlife, and how you live now determines which level you end up on for men, not for women, sorry. Women have to be called by name by their husbands. Those who are faithful to Mormon teachings and good life, live a good life, will attain the celestial kingdom, where each one becomes a god of their own right. Those who are righteous but not faithful Mormons go to a planet for the righteous of non-Mormons called the terrestrial kingdom. The wicked are sent to a planet just for them called the telestial kingdom, and the last level, or hell, or perdition, is reserved for the devil and the most wicked of people. And then there's the Jehovah Witnesses who teach that at judgment, we all end up in one of three places. For a select few, 144,000 of the most faithful, they go to heaven and reign with Christ in his kingdom. The majority of good and faithful Jehovah Witnesses inhabit paradise, which is on this earth after it's fixed up a bit. And everyone else gets annihilated. We cease to exist. And of course, there are always those who get creative. Sometime back, I came across this ad. My plan to help you live forever, at least online. People used to write long letters. If you were famous, they'd eventually be collected into a book, maybe become the basis of a movie. But who writes letters anymore? An email just isn't the same. Why should immortality be limited to the rich and famous? If you want to create a personal website, I have a plan to keep it alive long after you're gone. Come to the site and I'll explain how you can rest at peace at internetmausoleum.com. Unfortunately, those who may have invested didn't realize that even the internet's not forever. The site went broke, no longer in service. Then there was an internet company that ran the ad which said, with the help of the terminally ill volunteers, our service is sending telegrams to people who have passed away. For a donation of $5 per word and a five-word minimum, we can have telegrams delivered to people who have passed away. This is done with the help of terminally ill volunteers who memorize the telegrams before passing away and then deliver the telegrams after they have passed away. We call this an afterlife telegram. It goes on to say, since we cannot guarantee delivery or prove that the message has been delivered successfully, our cover- customers do not pay for deliveries. They pay for delivery attempts. And what we do is guarantee the following. One, that the messengers have memorized their telegrams before passing on. And two, the messengers have promised to do what can be done to deliver their telegrams to the addressees after passing. People get creative. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I believe in the resurrection, it says, and the life everlasting. Jesus asked Mary, do you, or Martha, do you believe this? If he asked us, what would we say? Do we believe this? No one else can answer it for us. If we join in with her confession of verse 27, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, and give our hearts to him, then death and sin, Scripture says, have no hold over us. From that perspective, we can affirm, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And Paul's words hold true that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even conceived what God has promised for those who love him. What we believe is important. It shapes our life. And these past eight weeks or so, I've been trying to give just a brief overview of the Apostle Creed's, the central elements of our faith, because it's important to know. If you're ready yourself and have not done so to make a commitment to say, I believe in these things, even in my flawed understanding or limited understanding, Jesus welcomes you and meets you where you're at. And we invite you in a moment when we sing the invitation as we do each week to discover that life that he promises so that we can be a part of that resurrected body and that everlasting life. To discover life as God created it to be. So as the worship team comes, as we prepare to stand and sing together, it's an invitation if you have not made that decision, if you would like to learn how you can be right with God, to have that assurance that Jesus promises We offer this time as a time to talk with you, to pray with you, to welcome you if you want, have made that decision and you want to follow up either in baptism or to unite with this church. We invite you to come.